Well, if you have a Bible, could you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 33? Isaiah, if you split your Bible in half, you'll probably be in Psalms. Just head right and go to Isaiah chapter 33. And I want to begin by reading the first 16 verses of this text before we start looking at it. And I want to encourage you that um, while Isaiah is hard, boy, there are some beautiful things in this passage. So I want to encourage you to um, to dig hard, to, to listen well to God's Word, um, and to be ready to behold wonderful things from it. And so let's begin by reading God's Word in Isaiah chapter 33, verses 1 through 16. We will look at the whole chapter, but we'll just read to 16 for now. God's Word says to us, Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed, when you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers as locusts leap it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, the heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. The first sentence of chapter 33 introduces us to a difficulty that we all face in this world. This is what it says. Ah, you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. This is the difficulty. It's the appearance in the world that the destroyers and the traitors and the betrayers win. That those who use their power to hurt and harm others escape hurt and harm that the bullies of the world get what they want and all the nice guys and girls finish last. That God's people are run over by the people of the world. 
Isaiah 33 is, is brutally honest about the pain and the destruction that the enemies of God cause in this world. And it tells us this, though. It says, in the face of unchecked evil and threats from all sides, we must confidently wait for the Lord. That's our big idea for today. In the face of unchecked evil and threats from all sides, in the midst of when the destroyer seems to keep destroying and the traitor keeps winning, in the midst of unchecked evil and threats from all sides, what must we do? We must confidently wait for the Lord. Now I'm talking about destroyers and I'm talking about betrayers and waiting <laughs> It doesn't seem like much of a response, does it? What do you do in the midst of destroyers and traitors? You wait. In the musical Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton is held forth as this man of action, as someone who gets things done, the guy who's not throwing away his shot. And he said in contrast to Aaron Burr, whose mantra is, wait for it. To which Hamilton says, you get nothing if you wait for it. Another man who seemed to disparage waiting was Dr. Seuss. He wrote in one of my favorite books, So the Places You'll Go, of the waiting place. This is what he says. It's a place where for people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or a no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for the wind to fly a kite or waiting around for Friday night or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake or a pot to boil or a better break or a string of pearls or a pair of pants or a wig with curls or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. To which Dr. Seuss says, no, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying. You'll find the bright places where the boom bands are playing. <laughs> waiting. That's not something any of us ever really want to do. And often we are called as God's people not to simply wait, but to push against the evil and the injustice of our world. But sometimes we simply are called to wait for the Lord, to wait for him to act. And the force of this passage is actually, it's, it's not on action. It's on the fact that we often must endure difficulty and trust that the Lord is going to act in his own time and with his perfect justice, that sometimes we have to wait for things to be made right, whether we see it in the present or in the new kingdom. So as we were in chapter 30, verse 18, we are again called to wait. We are called to trust that God will act perfectly and in his perfect time, even if we are growing a little bit impatient. Therefore, in the face of unchecked evil and threats from all sides, we must confidently wait for the Lord. But know this, that as we wait, we do it, we, we do it, we, we do not wait without hope or without clarity. We confidently wait. I want that to be clear. We'll just wait. We confidently wait. David Jackman said in a sermon on this text, we do walk by faith, but not in the dark. We walk by faith, but we don't walk in the dark. You see, the, the revelation of the scriptures gives us eyes to see how God is working in this world and how we are to respond and how we can trust him. And so as we confidently wait for the Lord, we know what to look for. So three things we're waiting for. That's what we're going to talk about today. Three things that we're waiting for. First, we wait for the Lord to destroy 
the destroyer. That's verses one through six. We are waiting for the Lord to destroy the destroyer. This is the final of six woes that we've been looking at in this section of Isaiah. This final woe is directed towards Judah's enemies, specifically Assyria, the Assyrians who were coming to attack them. As we said, it begins by speaking of this sad reality that often those who destroy and betray in this world seem to get away with it. However, the narrative shifts in the second part of verse one. Did you see that? When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Isaiah said that the tables would eventually turn on Assyria and they would find themselves objects of destruction. They had betrayed many, including Judah. You can read in 2 Kings 18 of how Sennacherib, king of Assyria, asked for gold and silver, which King Hezekiah then ransacked from the temple and from his own house to make this treaty with them. But making a treaty with a liar never goes very well, does it? And Judah was quickly betrayed by Assyria, despite giving them exactly what they asked for. And yet, while he seemed to have gotten away with another deception, we find later on that Sennacherib will be defeated. And in fact, Sennacherib's own sons murder him. The betrayer is betrayed by his own flesh and blood. This, this history, this small history lesson from Assyria and from Sennacherib reminds us that while evil and unchecked power seem to win daily battles, they eventually lose the war. Often in this life, those who have hurt and harmed others will face justice for their deeds. There is some justice that God brings about in this world, in the here and now. Those who rise to the heights of power by false and deceptive means often do fall and are destroyed. So what must we do in the face of destroyers and deceivers? Verse 2 is clear. We wait. We wait for the Lord to be gracious to us. We ask that he would be our arm of salvation each day, knowing that he can cause our enemies to flee if he simply stands up to help us. You ever have a parent do that? Kids are getting a little crazy and all the parent has to do is stand up and everything stops for a minute. That's what the Lord does. He stands up and everything ceases. Like the ravaging of caterpillars and locusts, the Lord can bring total victory for his people. We don't need to fight our enemies. We can stand still and see the salvation of the Lord as we wait for him. Now, what does waiting look like? I think in verses two through four, it certainly sounds a lot like waiting is expressed through prayer. Specifically, I would say through daily prayer. Every morning, he says, every morning represents a new threat from the enemy but also a new opportunity for the Lord to show his strength as we rely on him in prayer. We wait for the Lord. How do we wait for him? We wait for him as we pause at the start of each day. We pause and we acknowledge the reality of the difficulties around us and ask that he would be our arm of strength and deliverance every morning. When we arise and we speak to him about the enemies of our souls, about the enemies in our workplaces, the enemies of temptation, the enemies of those who oppose the gospel. And we don't know what God's going to do or how he might rescue or when he might rescue, but we turn to him in prayer in the midst of all those difficulties. And when we do that, we are waiting for him. If you're not sure how to pray, I'll give you a suggestion. Verse two. (laughs) Verse two is simple enough to memorize 
but powerful enough that you could pray it every day for the rest of your life. You could wake up every morning, think about the enemies that are in front of you, and simply say in the words of verse 2, be gracious to me, Lord, as I wait for you. Be my strong arm this morning. Be my salvation in all the troubles that I face today. That's how you wait for the Lord. And what will the result be of that kind of waiting? We're told in verse 5 that, that the Lord will fill his people with good blessings. When the Lord saves us from his enemies by his arm and his arm alone, then he is exalted. And in his exalted state, we're told that he graciously gives us justice, righteousness, stability in our times, salvation, wisdom, knowledge, and most importantly, his saving arm that meets us as we wait for him gives us a fear of him. It says there at the end of verse 6, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. It's, it's the treasure of God's people, this fear of him and a reverence for him because it keeps us from letting his enemies or our enemies fill us with fear. When we know the strength of God's arm, and when we see the victory that he brings to us and the blessings that flow from it, we are fearful of him and revere him. Then we can confidently say with Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. I, I will not fear humans because I fear the Lord. And if he is on my side, what can men and women do to me? The fear of the Lord is a treasure that keeps our hearts in the face of unchecked evil and threats from all sides, we must confidently wait for the Lord. We wait for him to destroy the destroyers of this world, which we may see in this life as we walk by faith, as we pray every day, as we grow in the fear of the Lord. But also, secondly, we wait for the Lord to arise. Verses 7 through 16. We wait for the Lord to arise. Now, this is a bit redundant. It's very much parallel to what we've just seen. But I think that this section kind of captures the element of time. The, the reality that the Lord does not always work on our time schedule, that we often feel as if we are being asked to wait for him for too long. And so we oscillate like the psalmist between faith and impatience. We cry out, how long, O Lord? When will all these struggles stop? When will this health crisis be over? When will this job not be so hard? When will parenting not be so difficult? When will life be back to normal? When will this relationship not be so frustrating? When will this person or this thing that is a thorn in my side every single day, when will they be gone? Our impatience, come, impatience comes in part because of the destruction that is caused by those who oppose the ways of righteousness. And we see this. Verses 7 through 9 describe them pretty graphically. They describe the, the desolation that was coming on Jerusalem, weeping in the streets, broken covenants. The land itself, even the most fruitful parts of it, were withering and dying. And so too, we get frustrated because we see how when we fail to love God and love others as individuals and as a people, that it destroys relationships. When we oppose God, it destroys cities and nations. When we oppose God, it destroys even the physical world that we live in. And yet when all seems lost, we see in verse 10 that the Lord will arise. <laughs> the Lord will arise. When it seems like there is no hope left, 
the Lord lifts himself up and he comes as a consuming fire so that all of his enemies are cut down and burned. We wait for the Lord knowing that his timing is perfect, that he will arise even if it's in the 11th hour when we finally have been stripped of all other refuges and he will rescue us. And so we are waiting for the Lord to arise, even if he takes longer than we expect him to. But here's what happens in the text. When the Lord does arise, God's people see his power and his just judgment. And the result in verses 13 and 14 is that God's people are awakened to see their own sin. When God arises, we realize that the struggles of our lives are often not the result of the evils of others, but they're the result of our own evil hearts and our own sin. And so we say, if the Lord is coming to judge those who have turned against him, then I'm going to be judged. And therefore, verse 14, the sinners in Zion, are, it says, are also afraid. And we all rightly ask, who among us can dwell with God? the consuming fire. Who among us? That image of fire scares us, but it also answers that question. Because we're reminded, as we've been going through these chapters, we're reminded that this fire in Jerusalem is the fire of what? It's the fire of the altar hearth. It's the fire from which the, the cherubim took the, the coal that cleansed the lips of Isaiah himself. The place of burning is the altar. It's a place that destroys, but it's a place that cleanses. Maybe that sounds like something you don't want still. <laughs> I'd rather not be consumed on the altar. I don't know about you. Well, your other options found in verse 15, if you want to survive the burning of the Lord's righteous wrath, then you just have to walk righteously, speak uprightly, despise the gain of oppression, have nothing to do with bribes, close your eyes and ears to all evil. You just have to be perfect. <laughs> That's how you dwell in the midst of the consuming fire that is God. And so we're stuck between a, a rock and a hard place, aren't we? Be burned on the altar of God's justice or try to keep the law perfectly so that our defense will be sure. You see where I'm going? Into the distressing news comes the good news of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, who fills the law's demands, including everything in verse 15 and more, and who therefore could dwell in God's pure and holy presence. And Jesus, who willingly, though pure, though holy, willingly was consumed by God's wrath, who laid down his life for the sake of his sheep and died on the cross, taking on himself the fire of God's wrath for us. Here's the wonderful thing of the gospel. Nothing that is true about who God is, about his holiness, about his wrath, about his power, nothing changes from verses 13 through 16, except for the fact that God steps in and he is the just and the justifier of his people. He comes and he calls us not to be perfect anymore or even to be consumed, but rather he calls us to repent and to believe so that we can have eternal life because he was perfect and because he was consumed. And then, and only then can we walk in the ways of verse 15. I think verse 15 is something that we should aspire to, but only because 
Jesus has accomplished it for us and given us His Spirit so that we can live and walk in His ways. So that we can come to the altar as living sacrifices for God's service. As new creations in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, and now we can walk in the righteousness that He calls us to, to the glory of the Father. These, in verse 15, are the fruits of true repentance. The fruits of faith. And so, We're waiting, remember, for the Lord to arise. And here's the wonderful thing. In Jesus, he has. In sending Jesus, the Lord has lifted himself up so that all who will take refuge in him will not be consumed by his wrath. And he has risen, hasn't he? He has really risen, risen from the dead, trampling over death by death itself. As I think about this picture of burning, an image comes to my mind that I've heard before. And it's this picture of a field that is burning and you're standing in the middle of it and and the flames are coming closer and closer and they will burn us unless we do something that seems counterintuitive, which would be to set fire to the crops that are immediately around us and, and burn them so that when this major flame comes, it does not burn us because we're standing in a spot that has already been burned. Do you get that picture? the area that has already been burned, the flames come burning the whole field, but it misses us because the fire has already been in this place. And because Jesus has taken on God's wrath for us, we can stand in him where God's wrath has already been poured out, where the fire has already burned and we can be saved. Even as the Israelites were saved from the angel of death because of the blood of the Passover lamb they placed over the doorposts. The good news helps us be patient then as we wait in all kinds of circumstances. We can know, we can know this, that if God sent Jesus at just the right time to save his people, then he's also going to arise and help us when we are in need. There may be times where we cry out, how long, O Lord? Lord, when will this be over? But we can also be confident that he is going to arise and help his people. If he's given us the son, if he's not spared his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So in the face of unchecked evil and threats from all sides, we must confidently wait for the Lord. We wait for him to destroy the destroyer. We wait for the Lord to arise, which he has done in Jesus and which he does every day through his indwelling spirit. And finally, we wait for the king in all his beauty. We wait for the king in all his beauty, verses 17 through 22. These verses need very little explanation, so I'm not going to explain them much, to be honest. (laughs) They, They describe for us what the Lord will do when he comes again to reign as the true king. They they paint this picture that is the opposite of verses seven through nine. They speak of the new Jerusalem where God will reign and where all evil and all threats will be gone. So hear these beautiful words from Isaiah seven, Isaiah 33. Verses 17 through 22. This is speaking of when the king comes in that future day and the new Jerusalem is here. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is, where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, 
Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, no majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Do you see the picture? I love that, that, that picture in verse 21. The Lord in majesty will be a place of broad rivers and streams, a place of fruitfulness. And, and the city will be a place where, where no enemy ships can come in and harm us. The Lord will save us. He, he is our judge. He is our lawgiver. He is our king. And he is our savior. And when he comes, we will ask, where are all our enemies? <laughs> because they will all be gone, including the ones in our own hearts. And though they're not gone now, the, the vision of that day that is coming is what allows us to confidently wait in the present. It gives us a, a proper perspective. We're confident of God's power to save and rescue us now, to bring goodness and blessing into our world now. But we also know that it's not until the, the king in all his beauty is enthroned forever that all our enemies will be scattered. Don't, don't think that perfection is coming now. It's coming later. And, and that gives us the right perspective. Isaiah, therefore, is calling us that, that when we are overwhelmed by the evil that's in us and around us, we have to cast our vision beyond the present to this day that is coming because we're waiting for a day and it's going to come. Have you planned your summer vacation? Some of you know a week that's coming and you have deep hope in the joy and the rest that it will bring. To an even greater degree, we know that there is a rest for us that is coming. There is a day coming when there will be no more evil. And what's it do? Just like the hope of vacation keeps you going at work, the hope of that day keeps us going in the present, keeps us going, it keeps us faithful waiting on the Lord. Now, I can't tell you what date to circle on your calendar when that day is coming. But, but that day is actually more sure than your vacation, that it is coming. Verses 23 and 24, some closing images for you. I, I'll be honest, I'm not sure what all of them are, but there's some beautiful ones in here that I can tell you that what they are. Verse 23 and 24, your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Simply put, we read here, I think that, that as best I can tell, that on our own, we are a mastless ship. Picture a big ship with no masts whatsoever. And if we are trusting in ourselves, then we are acting like that. We, we, it's like frantically running around the deck of a ship that has no sails. Lots of activity, no progress. But for those who wait on the Lord, we are like a ship with all of the necessary sails. And if we've got all the necessary sails, what do we need to do? 
We just wait for the wind. We just wait. We wait for the Lord to arise and to fill our sails and to push us into the safe harbors that he has prepared for us. Don't trust yourself. You're a massless ship, but trust the Lord and you have every sail that you need to be safe and secure. Because in God's kingdom, we're told here that even the lame get a share in the spoils. Because his kingdom is made up not of those who have strengthened themselves, but those who are forgiven. Did you see that? What marks out the people who dwell in the Lord's land? The last phrase there, verse 24, the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So brothers and sisters, don't despise waiting and don't feel like it's fruitless or that it's weakness. To wait with confidence is a mark of all God's children in this world that's full of evil and threats. So I want to encourage you, wait confidently for the Lord because we know what he's going to do. We can wait with confidence. We can trust him. Why? Because we know that the destroyers and the betrayers will all one day be destroyed and betrayed and that the Lord has and will arise and that the king in all his beauty will sit on his eternal throne in the new Jerusalem surrounded by all of his children. We long for that day and we wait for it with confidence. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word and then I will pray for us. Oh, Father, we confess that we struggle to wait sometimes, that we get burdened by the evil in this world, by the evil in us, by the enemies against us, by the destroyers that we see in the world, by those with power that harm others and seem to never be held accountable. Lord, we get tired. And we do ask, Lord, how long do we have to wait? But in the midst of our impatience, Lord, we do trust you. We trust that you will bring justice in this day and in the future. We trust, Lord, that if you have sent Jesus to save us, then of course you will be with us each day. You will walk with us. You will sustain us. And we trust, Lord, that you are coming. And so, Lord, we pray that you will make us a people of prayer, daily prayer, that we would call out to you and rest in you and trust you And know, Lord, that you will be gracious to us as we wait for you. And though we pray that you would make us a people with a vision for eternity, that we would have a vision for who you are and for the world that you are bringing. Lord, give us patience as we wait and also give us confidence as we wait. Confidence in who you are. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.